What is up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I'm joined by Brian Brian Ferelli. So Brian puts out great content on investing for beginners, kind of getting down the strategy, the overall mindset of investing. So we kind of get into that um, a little bit, you know, not as advanced of a topic as I normally get into on this podcast. And I think that's for good reason, because we've seen a lot of crazy market volatility, a lot of people with their head in the news and other things like that. But I think it's time to take a step back and get back to the basics. Learn a little bit about the investing strategy. If you've gotten into investing in the past two years, try to understand a little bit more about what you are investing in. You know, as they say, these bear markets are for education and learning and kind of developing that strategy and honing in on what you're investing in. So Brian and I have a great discussion throughout this podcast as to how he develops a strategy and how he what has worked best for him over his period of time and kind of, you know, riding the waves of uh, beginning investing in early 2004 and then kind of riding 2008 up until now. So be sure to tune in for another action-packed episode. And if you're listening on uh, audio or wherever you get podcasts, please, please, please leave me a five-star review. Help the show grow. Help share it. Subscribe to wherever you get podcasts. And if you enjoy it and want to see my pretty face, please subscribe to my YouTube as well as I'm trying to grow that and put out clips from each episode. But as always, ladies and gentlemen, this is not financial advice and should never, never, never be taken as financial advice. So please, please, please do your own due diligence. Everything you hear in this podcast is strictly of the opinion of Brian and myself and should never, never, never be taken as financial advice. Now, let's get into the episode. Whoosh. What is up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast. And for everybody streaming me sats or contributing on podcasting 2.0 apps, it is greatly, greatly appreciated. And wherever you're listening, please, please, please subscribe and like the video or or give a five-star rating wherever you get your podcast because supporting the show is greatly appreciated. So it helps you bring on these big-name guests and other things like that. Uh, the more notoriety the show gets. So I really, really appreciate the support. And uh, let me know some feedback in the reviews. I'll, I'll Maybe I'll read some in the next coming episodes. But I do have a very special guest. He's in the waiting room right now. So let me pull him up. I got Brian Feraldi, who is, uh, you know, just overall tweeting great information on investing, mindset, all that kind of stuff. And he's got a great newsletter as well. So Brian, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Brandon. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And so for those in the audience who might not really know anything about you or have just kind of seen you in Twitter, why don't you give us a little rundown of your background and kind of, you know, how you got started to to where you're at today? Sure. So like so many people, I had no idea what I wanted to do for a living when I was uh, graduating uh, college. Uh, but I uh, was lucky enough to get scooped up by a, uh, a startup medical device company. Did that for about uh, 10 years, and just through sheer luck, I joined a company that is now publicly traded and worth $20 billion, uh, and I was there at the, from before we had revenue, so that was fascinating uh, to see. Uh, during that time, I spent hours upon hours in my car because I was in sales for them, and I spent basically all that time teaching myself about investing. Uh, I just have a voracious appetite for any content that's related to money, uh, business, uh, personal finance, um, and investing. Uh, and then over the last uh, about eight years ago, uh, or nine years ago now, I switched to becoming a um, switch careers completely, became a uh, writer for uh, The Motley Fool, and I've been creating financial content ever since. Wow. Okay. So that that's great. And, it, you know, you, you kind of, uh, I don't want to say dated yourself, but you put yourself back like, you know, eight, eight or so years from now. So what, we're in 2023, that's 2015, 2014-ish time. So podcasting wasn't as big of a thing that that was kind of going on right then. Um, so, you know, what was your strategy as, as far as like education goes? Was it more audio books or, or did you kind of find some of the podcasts? If maybe you want to shout some of them out or something like that, that kind of helped you along this journey. Feel free. Yeah, I've been listening to podcasts essentially since podcasts were a thing uh, back in 2008. Eight, I would say, was when I started to listen to to podcasts. Uh, my strategy at the time was get 
every business book that I possibly could from the library system in the state that I live in. I live in Rhode Island and I would just research investment books, uh, business books, and there was plenty of them. And I would try and get them in audiobook form and I'd be putting the CDs <laughs> in my car as I was going around to listen to them. So that was a major uh, source. Then there was the earnings calls themselves. You can learn a lot about business and companies in particular when you listen to, uh, to earnings calls. And while uh, some of them weren't hosted on the internet at the time, many of them you could actually dial in, like literally call the thing and put in a passcode, and then you could get on to, uh, to listen to the call. So I did um, that as well. But early on, uh, some of the podcasts that I started listening to from day one were like uh, Motley, The Motley Fool launched a podcast in I think 2009, maybe uh, maybe 2010 called Motley Fool Money. I basically have listened to every single episode that's ever come out of that. Um, there's a guy named Brian Preston who has a podcast called uh, The Money Guy Show. He's been in the game for like 15 years. I've listened to tons of his content. So those are the two that I would say stick out the most that I've listened to for uh, the longest. But investors are spoiled today. Like there's never been easy access to super high quality podcasts, YouTube video, Twitter accounts, etc. Like getting information about uh, getting actual helpful information about money investing has never been easier. Yeah, for sure. And, and it requires a lot of, I, I think, kind of like filtering out right now, right? Because you're having so many people kind of going on there and you're even seeing some interesting things, a lot of high volatility, a lot of, you know, easier access to to investing now with like, you know, the the big boom of Robin Hood and kind of almost gamification of, uh, you know, stock investing. So, you know, you talked about kind of starting to listen to financial education since 2008-ish, 9-ish, which obviously was right around that, that economic crisis. So, you know, was that kind of the time that you started investing yourself? And if so, like kind of talk about your personal like investing journey on, on kind of, you know, this wild ride we've been on lately in the past uh, 15 or so years. So I'm going to put investing in air quotes for a second. I started investing with air quotes in 2004. And I say investing in air quotes because at the time, I thought that the way you made money in the market was you bought penny stocks and you sold those penny stocks a few days later uh, to somebody else for a higher price. I had no idea how business worked. I had no idea how to read financial statements. I had no idea what market cap was, what management meant, how to look up inside ownership. I knew nothing about investing at the time, but I was risking, uh, which felt like a lot of money to me at the time, a few hundred dollars to a few thousand dollars buying and selling uh, penny stocks that I would learn about um, through Yahoo's discussion boards, which was very much like the, the Reddit um, meme stocks uh, of the day. Yahoo had discussion boards where people would uh, talk about penny stocks and stuff like that. And I would buy some of them and screen for them by, by, by share price. So I don't consider myself an investor at that point, but I was actively buying and selling stocks uh, at, at that time. Uh, thankfully, that turned out to be a horrible decision and I lost tons of money or like on a percentage basis, I lost tons of money, but it wasn't a crippling amount of actual money uh, that I was uh, losing because I did everything wrong absolutely everything wrong. If I was just starting uh, today, I can guarantee you I would be on a Robin Hood. I would be on the the, um, the Reddit boards. I would be doing everything that the people are doing uh, today with meme stocks. Like That would 100% appeal to me because I had no idea how to actually properly uh, invest. So after losing money horribly for a year, I finally started to actually educate myself about business. I read books by The Motley Fool, read books by Peter Lynch. I read books about War, Warren Buffett uh, by Benjamin Graham, you know, kind of all the classic books that people read when they want to get started uh, with um, investing. And then I found The Motley Fool online, mostly through their, their free articles. And it's amazing how much, how much you can actually learn just by reading free information uh, that was out there. So over that time, I was slowly learning about how investing works, what the stock market was, the relationship between businesses and, uh, and their stock prices over time. And then came 2008. And that was quite the learning experience because that was like being punched in the face again and again and again uh, with uh, with investing. I would be pouring money into the markets every single month. And every single time I did so, it felt like a stupid decision because everything I bought just fell 10 or 20 percent um, the next month. But I was lucky enough or uh, smart enough or lucky enough, however one you call it 
during that time to to buy some to make some great uh, uh, buys that I still hold today. For example, I bought I bought Google in March of 2009. Uh, I didn't fully understand the bull case for it or how it worked, but I got that at I mean, several, several, probably a thousand percent or so uh, ago, um, uh, simply because it was going down. And I was like, well, this is a good company. I think it's going to uh, uh, go up. I bought Apple uh, during that time frame. I bought Netflix in like 2011 or so. So I just got these, I got a handful of mega winners into my portfolio. And then over the next 10 years, I just studied as much as I could about investing. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it is pretty interesting because the way you're kind of lining things up right now, like your own personal journey, I feel like a lot of people, you know, in this 2020 ish to 2022, 23, 23 had kind of a similar run up, right? Because it, it seemed like after the COVID dip, when everything kind of went down, you could essentially throw your money at anything and it was going up and you kind of look like a genius. And then, you know, as everything kind of started to to open up a little bit and and the uh, inflation or not inflation, the uh, stimulus checks and other things like that kind of started to run out. The stock market started to tank and it's been kind of going down lately. Uh, it, has ha it has had a pretty good start to the year, but in hindsight, you know, it, it, it is kind of hard to explain and kind of, you know, difficult for maybe a new investor to kind of understand how we got here and all these, you know, the bumpy ride that we're going on. So, you know, what are some of the, you know, great fundamentals or I guess investing basics that kind of helped you get through that time to kind of, uh, you know, get where you're at today, where you feel comfortable in your investments, because I think that's kind of like the biggest thing for new investors right now is just one, understanding what you invest, what you're investing in, and two, kind of uh, getting comfortable with the strategy and, you know, uh, ha having the, the long-term outlook, but uh, feel free to take it away from there. I know I kind of rambled on a bit. The, the number one thing that I did not understand when I first started investing was the relationship that exists between a business and its stock price. And the reason that that relationship is so confusing is that two, is that those two things can become completely detached from each other for extended periods of time, just completely detached from, from, from each other. You can have a business that's doing a mediocre job or even doing poorly, and yet its stock could be going up. You could also have a, a business that is absolutely thriving, growing like crazy, doing everything a business should be doing, and its stock price could be going down. And those two things can become det detached from each other for years on end. So if you are investing for the very first time and you're putting money in the market, making that connection between the two uh, is a really hard psychological jump to make. The media that we have today and the way that people talk about investing only makes that problem worse. And I, I think so many people that know absolutely nothing about, nothing about investing know how to look up a stock price. If you said to anybody with an iPhone, what's the uh, share of Apple rice right now? They might not know, have any clue what that means, but they know how to go to the stock app that's built into the phone and look up the price uh, of Apple. And the tricky thing about investing is the thing that is always in our face, always talked about is price, 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 price. And it's natural for people to look at just the stock price and make conclusions about the business. Oh, the stock's going up. Must be a great investment. Oh, the stock's going down. Must be a terrible uh, investment. And then you, when we layer on human psychology on, on top of that, it makes complete sense why markets behave the way that markets uh, do, do behave. So if you were a new investor and you were interested in individual stock uh, in, investing, the very first thing that I would encourage people to do is to study the relationship that exists between a, a business and its, its stock price. Because once you understand, truly internalize and understand uh, that re relationship, it frees you up, truly frees you up to have a much longer term time horizon and, and ignore or do your best to ignore short term price movements. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it feels like it's kind of tough, especially for the newer person to ignore maybe some of those short term price movements um, because of that relationship, you know, like you said, with a business and the stock price. Right. Maybe it's some sort of news uh, that comes out of the company 
or uh, maybe it's even a macro event. Like, you know, we see the CPI prints are definitely getting a lot of coverage now. Inflation's getting a lot of coverage now. How much the Fed is raising interest rates. Seems like it's all over the news, all over Twitter and other things like that. So, you know, with that relationship, when you're seeing things kind of swing up and down, you know, how do you kind of, I guess, get started to, to pick a specific company? Do you develop a thesis um, and then say, hey, you know, if certain metrics get to this point, this is kind of where you like to jump in? Or is it more so like, hey, you know, I, I like a company like Apple or a, a company like Google. And I think like the business is going to be good long term because I believe in the, you know, the fundamentals of the business or leadership team or whatever it is. And so the price doesn't necessarily matter too much. And, you know, you're just kind of like looking to hold for a long period of time. Yeah, if you're going to be buying individual stocks, it's really important that you come up with a, a process that you can look at, judge, refine, make changes to, et cetera, uh, over time. Uh, I can tell you again, when I was first starting, I had no process. I had, I had, I had nothing. I didn't even know what the terms meant that were uh, put on the screen. Like if you type in, um, uh, you know, uh, Meta's stock uh, into, into Yahoo Finance, you see terms like PE ratio, uh, you see terms like market capitalization, you see enterprise uh, value. What do those mean? Like a lot of people that are investing don't even know what those basic uh, terms uh, mean. So the first step is to always is to always educate yourself. However, if you're interested in buying uh, buying and um, in investing in individual stocks, here's an exercise I think everybody should do. The first thing people should do is they should make a list of all of the characteristics, all of the business characteristics that they would find appealing. Literally write down as many as you can think of. So for me, I want a company with a lot of cash in its balance sheet and no debt. I want there to be positive net income and positive free cash flow. I want a high gross margin that is stable and rising. I want some form of business competitive advantage, aka a moat, to be present. I want a management team that's been in there for a long time and that owns a ton of stock. I want a stock that's already beaten the, the market, etc. So make a full list, everything that you can think of for this would be a positive for, for a reason for me to invest in this company. Once you're done with that, make another list. And, and, and that list, do the exact opposite. What attributes do you not want to see in, in an investment? So for me, that's things like accounting problems. If there's accounting problems, you're done. I'm not, end of story. I'm not investing in you, period. I don't like it when a company gets a large chunk of its revenue from a single customer. That's called customer concentration. That turns me off as an investor. I don't like it when a uh, business is operating in an industry that is in a permanent state of decline or the industry is being disrupted. I don't like it when a company has a high dependence on an outside market price for it to succeed. For example, I don't like investing in gold, gold, um, gold miners because their revenue completely depends on the price of gold, which is something that management has no control over. I don't like high stock-based compensation. I don't like it when companies grow by acquiring other businesses, etc. So we have these two lists, one good, one bad. Next thing to do, really hard, rank them in order of importance. Most important attribute at the top, least important attribute at the bottom. Final step, take a set number of points. In my case, I used 100 and assign those points. And it's important that they're a fixed number to the attributes according to your ranking uh, system. Ta-da, you now have a, a weighed uh, checklist that you can use to judge whether companies fit the criteria that you are actively looking for. So I've done this myself. I developed a checklist for myself uh, about five or six uh, years ago. And now whenever I come across any potential investment, the first thing I do is I fill out my investing checklist as I, as I go down. And it gives me what, what the output of that is, is how close does this business in its current state match what I'm looking for in an investment? And then after doing this hundreds of times, I have a list of stocks that are very good matches for me and other ones that are terrible matches for me. Once I have a list of, okay, these are candidates that I'm actually interested in investing in, I go to the next step, which is which ones are trading at valuations that I find appealing. And then whenever I get new capital, I plow it into whatever business has the best combination of matches my investing criteria, trading at the best valuation, and has the, long, and has the, the most upside potential. 
and then repeat, 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 repeat. And as you make mistakes, update your process. Yeah, so there you go. I, I kind of wanted to ask about that. So you kind of gave me a nice lead in, but as you make mistakes, right? Because every investor is not perfect. When's a good time to know, hey, this company is, is not necessarily, you know, I guess either one invest, uh, reaching my initial thesis or, you know, meeting what I want in a business that I'm investing in, or, you know, two, maybe I evaluated this. It is meeting the, the, uh, criteria I, that you laid out just there. Um, but you know, the stock isn't performing very well. So like, when do you kind of need to know, uh, or how do you determine when to sell a stock? So I have 11 reasons why I sell, but let's start with the first, the first question, which can be, which can be hard to do. Uh, you could have done that perfectly well. A stock could have perfectly fit your criteria and you buy it and you're just wrong about the short-term valuation for whatever reason. Uh, one reason that a lot of companies have been smacked around over the last 18 months is uh, the Fed has raised interest rates. And when interest rates go up, um, high, the, the, the longest dated assets, aka growth stocks uh, out there, have been hit extremely uh, hard. What you have to do as an investor is separate the stock price movement from the business performance. The stock price movement is, is mostly noise. It's not complete noise, but it's mostly noise. The business performance, the actual earnings reports that come out, that is signal. Okay, so I personally weigh the uh, the actual business performance, the numbers that come out of the company, much more heavy than I do the stock performance. Now, if a stock is seriously declining and the rest of the market is going up, that is an indication, perhaps a strong indication, that there's something fundamentally wrong with, with the business. Perhaps a new competitor has come in. Perhaps the management team has, has made a, a, a blunderous uh, error. Perhaps they made an acquisition that they didn't like. Perhaps they needed to raise capital, and now that their stock price is down, they, they can't do so. So figuring out if you made a decision, if you made a poor uh, decision um, in, in hindsight, is actually is, is tricky to, to do. But you can't just look at, oh, the stock's down. I made, I made a bad decision. Um, investing isn't like touching a stove. You touch a, a stove, you know if it's cold or hot instantaneously. With investing, you don't know if you made a good or bad decision till a couple of years after you, you've seen uh, the business perform. So I typically like to judge my, my buys after a period of like three to five years. That tends to be enough time to tell if I made a good decision uh, or, or not. But the key thing to do is to watch the business performance, the actual performance of the company, not just the performance of the stock. Yeah. And, and I mean, once you kind of look at the business, uh, you know, performance and everything like that, you can kind of evaluate, I guess, your overall thesis. But you brought up a little bit earlier about listening to investor calls. So as somebody that's kind of starting to get in or even somebody that's maybe been investing in for a couple of years, maybe they haven't been super tuned into investing calls or maybe they never even listened to one. So, you know, what kind of are the key takeaways that you try to look for when you're listening to an investor call? And then I kind of have a follow up question on that as well. Sure. Well, uh, before you make an investment, you should write down why you're making that in investment. What's your thesis for, for owning that particular stock? What do you think is going to happen? And then when you're listening to the investor calls, ask yourself, what is actually happening? If you're investing in Netflix because you think it's going to substantially grow its subscriber base, and then you're listening in and its subscriber base is declining, that would be a bad thing, right? That would be a, okay, maybe my thesis is, is, is wrong, is, is wrong uh, in, in, in that case. But if they are growing their subscriber base, if they are raising their revenue, if, if, if revenue is growing, if margins are stable or expanding, that would be a, okay, my thesis is working out regardless of what the stock price is, is, uh, is, is doing. That's the kind of thing that I listen to, what I look for when I listen to um, uh, conference calls. It depends on um, what, why did I invest in, in the business and what's actually happening. It's kind of squaring those two things up to make sure the reasons that you bought the business in the first place are still intact. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's a great point there. And, and it is part of developing a thesis. And then there's also an interesting part that I think that 
you know, maybe not a lot of people really take too much weight on, but it's the risk se section. So sometimes maybe in the, the overall call, they don't go through that, but generally on the PDF that, that you, you know, the investors that you can download on, on every investor relations website of essentially any publicly traded company, they go through a full risk se section and they usually line it out. Sometimes the risks are really in depth and you can tell that they're really thought out. And sometimes they're not. It's, it's a little bit more surface level. So, you know, when you look at those risks, do you kind of try to come up with, I guess, your other your other risks of the, of the business that maybe worry you? Or do you kind of just, I, I guess, listen to, to those companies and say like, hey, you know, they're the quote unquote experts in that industry. They've been in it for such a long time. And so, you know, they've definitely thought about the, these risks that they've let that they've laid out. Yeah, reading through like a 10K, the risk section of, of a 10K can be an extremely trying task if you've done it for the first time. Uh, once you've done it, once you've invested enough, you can kind of, you know what's going to be in there. There's a lot of companies that have just like endless amounts of reasons that they could possibly think of to, to protect themselves legally from getting sued uh, if a risk was, was going in there. Like every 10K in the last like three years now has something about COVID. Uh, in there as like as as a risk uh, uh, to to the business. So I the the standard boilerplate ones I ignore. I personally just uh, ignore. I'm looking for the business specific uh, risks that are out there. We already talked about a big one for me, which is uh, customer concentration. Uh, risk, right? I don't like it when I, I would much rather have a, invest in a company that has a million customers um, that all make up an equal part of revenue than 10 customers that are that are all 10% of revenue or one customer that's like 50%. Uh, of revenue. That to me is a serious business risk um, that I have to think through very hard about whether I want to own and invest in that company. There's also supplier risk or traffic uh, risk. You think about a lot of digital companies, some of them will list in there. We get a substantial amount of our traffic from Google. So if Google makes an algorithm change to it, that can be actually thesis changing uh, for, for the company. And then there's also risks like, um, is there is there a, a legal ruling that could potentially uh, bust the company if they're being sued by a competitor over a patent, uh, for for example? Or there's there's risks that aren't listed on there, uh, such as dilution uh, risk, right? If companies are issuing lots and lots of stock-based compensation, uh, you as an investor are, are, are at risk of being diluted uh, over time so that even if the company prospers, you might not benefit. Uh, from that. So these are all the kinds of things that you have to keep in mind if you're going to be investing in any company. Yeah. And it's interesting that you kind of mentioned the third party, you know, risk, so to speak, because it seems like a lot of companies like, you know, once Apple shut down that privacy or tracking the data from app to app, it really hurt a lot of companies. And, you know, Meta is one of the bigger ones that comes to mind um, when it comes to that. So, you know, it, when it's like these big players like that, you know, maybe the FANG stocks or something along those lines, and you're seeing them, you know, they're just performing so well for so many, so many years, but they do have some, some risk and other things like that. You know, as long as these companies are kind of playing nice, it seems like both were kind of benefiting, but now it seems like, you know, Apple's, almost like kind of hurting this, this Facebook's, uh, you know, advertisement revenue model. So when it comes to things like that, and kind of like that third party counter or third party risk with this, where it, they're kind of reliant on maybe one source of revenue or other things like that, but the stock is performing well. And it seems like, Hey, you know, this is such a big company, you know, like Google, for example, right. Google majority of their, uh, revenue is from advertising. Um, you know, how do you kind of, I guess, delineate between that where majority of revenue is something, but that something is still very, very strong, uh, although there might be other sources of revenue. So that's a question every investor has to ask themselves, right? Just because a company has high customer concentration doesn't mean that stock isn't going to do well. Um, uh, American Tower, for example, um, is a is an operator in the United States that um, leases uh, cell tower space um, to 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 carriers. Well, in the United States, we pretty much have three major carriers, right? Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile slash uh, Sprint. So of course, they're going to have substantial customer concentration because there's essentially three end customers in the US that they can um, sell to. Yet if you look at that company, that has been a massive outperformer ever since it came public, I think in the early uh, two, 2000s. Um, 
so there are companies out there that can succeed despite having large customer concentration. The way that you have to account for that investor is one, are you comfortable with that? Two, what are the chances that um, that you think? What are the reasoned probability that something bad uh, could happen? And, and three, uh, if you did make an investment, uh, in that company, uh, the, the way that you control your risk is by controlling how much capital you allocate to that specific company. So you can dilute away the customer concentration risk by making it a smaller part of your portfolio. But whether or not you're comfortable with that totally depends on what you're comfortable with as an investor, most so than anything else. Yeah. And so you're talking about comfortability within an investor, right? So I kind of want to get into the mindset piece of things, because I think, you know, especially right now, that kind of plays a good uh, or no, a big role, big factor in what all is going on, right? Kind of blocking out the noise when it comes to maybe some macro events or something like that. Um, and maybe some, you know, uh, I guess events that could, that could happen that, you know, cause the entire stock market to swing in one direction or another. And so, you know, because of that, you know, I, I guess, what is the main uh, piece or mindset aspect that you kind of stress when you're talking to people or, or, you know, trying to help people get started and get invested when it comes to especially volatile times right now where, where you know, we don't really know if we've hit the bottom yet. We might have. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? So, um, you know, in, in this kind of volatile market and things kind of swing up and down and it seems like. Uh, the headlines across the news are X company goes up 120% and then the next day it's Y company goes down 95% or something along those lines. So, you know, I, I guess, how do you, do you, do you feel like maybe like just laying out your thesis and other things like that is what helps you? Um, or is there something else that within that, uh, you know, your mindset that helps you kind of, I guess, keep our longer term outlook? So the first thing that an investor needs to do before they make any investment is ask themselves, what is my time horizon for, for this in, in investment? If you are investing money today that you will need for a down payment on a house later this year, that money should not be in the stock market, period. End of story. The stock market is a wonderful place to put capital that you will need five plus years down, down the road. The stock market is not a place to put capital that you know that you will need for your actual life in less than that, that time period. So the first question an investor should ask themselves is, when do I need this money? If the answer is retirement, which is 30 or 40 years from now, you can completely ignore short-term volatility because you know that, yes, that money is going to fluctuate in value, but it has no impact on your life today. That money is used for uh, future retirement. So that would be thing one. It, it, this is something that so many people get wrong. They think I'm going to put money in the market because I want to make a 2x return next week. It's not how the stock market uh, works. Um, if, if you're looking for that kind of uh, return, if that's what you're expe expe expecting from the market, you're going to learn a lesson the hard way because you're going to do something stupid to get that, uh, to go after that kind of crazy return. So thing one, understand the time frame that you're investing for. Uh, thing two, think something that has helped me uh, tremendously is I consider my investing finances and my personal finances to be complete, two completely different things. And I personally believe that your personal finances are an order of magnitude more important than your investing uh, finances. So the way that I deal, or one way that I deal with the the, the volatility uh, of, my, of my portfolio, which it has been uh, quite volatile, is I keep my personal finances extraordinarily conservative. Uh, so I have zero debt to my name. I have more than a six figure, uh, six, six, six month, uh, emergency fund that I, that I keep, uh, in, in cash and those, and I have, you know, I have uh, retirement funds set up, uh, et cetera. So my personal finances are as conservative as they could, as they could possibly be because of that. I know that volatility in my investment portfolio has no impact on my actual day-to-day -day life. My portfolio could fall 50% from today, despite being bludgeoned over the last year uh, in the market, and it would change absolutely nothing about my day-to-day -day life. Why? Because my personal finances are so ridiculously uh, conservative. So that gives me a huge amount of 
of ability to withstand large swings in my in my net worth um, be, because I know that my day-to-day life will not be impacted at all. A lot of people skip that step. They think that investing will allow them to fix their personal finance situation because if I just buy the next Amazon or if I just buy the next cryptocurrency, boom, my my personal finances be be, be fixed. I suggest getting your personal finances uh, in the right place first before you actually start investing. Yeah, and, and that's a great point, and I and I really love that you brought that up right now because especially you know with inflation and expenses getting you know more expensive for the average person, right? Gas, eggs, you know, a bunch of the things that people are kind of talking about on Twitter, you know. But there's an aspect of that that I feel like is kind of tough, right? As as you got kind of get started in investing, you see a lot of stocks. Maybe you're starting to make some money on it. You know, how do you, I guess, avoid? maybe having that that money that's on the sidelines that's just kind of like you know sitting there and in, in a maybe a high yield savings account or just in a savings account that's earning a couple percent per year how do you avoid saying like hey you know i really like xyz stock or xyz business i'm just going to le- keep this on the sidelines and just continue to go in with every paycheck or whatever it is whatever your strategy is how do you avoid just kind of just i guess dumping in to to one stock and kind of going from there because you know, it, it meets your thesis and you, you just kind of hate having that money sitting on the sidelines. Well, the point of an emergency fund, you have to ask yourself, what is the point of an emergency fund? What is that capital there to do? That capital is there in case you have a job loss in your life. You get into a car accident, you get sued, something bad happens in your in your real life that destroys your short-term uh, income potential. That emergency fund is there to smooth out your, your real life. That's its function. Its function is not to earn you a return uh, on, on your capital. That, that, that money will sit there and that will lose value uh, versus inflation over time by, by, by design. But proper money management is still about keeping a certain amount of money uh, set aside. Now, how much money you should set aside depends on a range of, of, of factors. If you're someone that has no dependents, you have a and you have a career skills that that could be you could easily get another job if you lost your job within a period of of, of weeks. You don't need to have a six month emergency fund of cash uh, j- just sitting there. You can probably get by with much less. On the flip side, if you are uh, if you have a family with a lot of dependents, if you are the sole source of income for your family and you work in a volatile industry that is on the decline, I think you'd be crazy to have less than a three-month emergency fund. Perhaps a six-month emergency fund would, would be there. But it's important to understand what is the point of, of, of that money. Emergency fund money is there in case of emergency. An emergency is not, I want to buy this stock. That is fair. That is fair. It is. It is hard for me though, as somebody who just loves to invest that, you know, and see that grow. That just, uh, you know, just to kind of leave it sitting there. But I do get your point as you know what you need to do and and uh, you know kind of bracing yourself for a rainy day or an emergency, whether it's car accident or you need something like that. You know, you lose your job, something along those lines. Um, but you know, when it comes to evaluating personal finances and kind of getting started there, let, let's take a step back from all of that. So, you know, with expenses and other things kind of going up and almost like the v- price volatility of like your everyday life or your everyday month or, or whatever it is, whether it's, uh, you know, the grocery bill or other things like that, you know, I, I guess, how do you kind of take in the, a look in the mirror and kind of evaluate your personal finances in the time like now? And, uh, you know, maybe what is some advice to the listeners to kind of make sure that they have their personal finances in order, especially, when, you know, when we're coming to such, you know, an inflationary time where the headlines are, uh, unemployment's going to have to go up and other things like that. Yeah, well, the first thing I would say there is, uh, significantly cut back on your consumption of news. <laughs> Nothing will make your life worse than over consuming the news. The news is not there to entertain, is not there to educate you. The news is there to capture your attention, uh, a period. So that would be the first thing uh, that I would say. The, the biggest positive mental thing that I've ever done in my life is cut cable news out of my life completely. Uh, so the, the amount of news that I ingest on any given day is, is probably a third uh, to, to what the normal people uh, consume on any given day. Uh, 
Uh, so that's thing one. Uh, thing two is while it may feel like we're living in unprecedented times right now, uh, anybody who thinks that it generally means that they just haven't studied history uh, at all. What we're going through right now might be unprecedented for us, but we, this exact situation has existed, uh, or similar situations have existed uh, before. Just look back to the 1970s. The inflation rate was far higher then uh, than it is uh, uh, today. Heck, there was a period of time when when we thought we were on the cusp, uh, precipice of nuclear war, and they were training their kids in the 1950s to get under their desks. They were doing drills for nuclear uh, uh, war. Uh, it hasn't come to that yet, I hope it never does uh, here. Uh, so that would be the first thing that uh, that I would say. But re regardless, regardless of what's actually happening in, in the world, the basic tenets of personal finance apply no matter what's happening uh, in the world. You could rewind the clock to September 10th of, of 2001, the world felt completely fine, right? Yes, the stock, the, the tech, the, the NASDAQ uh, had fallen uh, quite a bit, but that would be you. If you were just a normal citizen, you would say today is a day like any other. And then the next day, the world changed uh, completely. So we were in uh, unprecedented times on September 10th. We just didn't know it uh, at the time until 24 hours uh, later. Same the day before um, the Japanese invaded, uh, uh, attacked Pearl Harbor, right? That was something that nobody saw uh, coming. Or how about earlier this year when Russia invaded uh, Ukraine? That was a surprising event. Or 2020 when COVID uh, came along. I, I, I remember hearing reports in like November, of, of, of 2019 about some disease happening in China or something like that and had did not appreciate the magnitude of what the world is about to uh, to go through. So we could always be on the precipice of something unprecedented happen uh, in, in, in the near term. That, that doesn't change whether or not the news is talking about something or not. This is why keeping an emergency fund and focusing on your personal finances is important no matter if we're living in normal times or unprecedented times. Yeah, and that's for sure, right? And and even in quote unquote normal times, right? I, I mean, we we saw the decade of crazy growth from about you know 2010 ish to to 2020, where we saw you know no PE ratio was too low, and some of the you know classic value investing metrics were just almost thrown out the door. You could you know essentially throw money at anything, and stocks were just ripping and roaring for nearly a decade. And uh, now it seems like that's going to be a little bit different, right? I mean, it seems like we're kind of reverting a little bit back to, to value investing principles, so to speak. Uh, but you had a recent thread or a recent post on Twitter about the P.E. ratio and how you think, you know, so, some of the other metrics might be better to look at. So, you know, as we're kind of getting into or out of this quote unquote, unprecedented time or where, wherever we're at, right? The current state of the market, uh, you know, how are you kind of changing your approach or are you changing your approach and how are you uh, evaluating uh, companies and what are some of the better metrics that you like to look at? Uh, so there's a bunch of questions in there. I first want to back up to something that you said. Um, uh, between 2010 and 2020, the market largely went went up. And if you weren't investing during that time, it's easy now to look backwards and say, wow, what an amazing market to, to, to be in. It just went uh, straight up. If you're, that is a lot of hindsight uh, bias working against you because I guarantee if you were investing that entire time, it always, that entire, that there was always reasons during that time to be fearful about what was coming around the corner. Always, period. Like uh, I remember vividly investing in 2010. The market had bottom bottomed in theory in 2009, and there were endless articles about the easy money has already been made. Get ready for the double dip recession. Right, then the next leg to drop is right around the corner. And this was 2010. And then the market went up again, and people were like, "Well, the easy money was made yet again, and get ready. The decline is right around the corner." And they said that every single year. Uh, over the next uh, 10, 10 years. So holding from 2010 to 2020 might look easy now. It was not when you were actually doing it um, uh, in, in, in real term, uh, in, in real time. Um, so I think that thing one. Thing two was about uh, a question about about valuation. Valuation is one of the most tricky is, is one of the most tricky parts uh, of investing to kind of really fully understand um, and, and master. 
if you look at what happened, how, how Benjamin Graham valued companies 80 years ago, he talked about things like looking at a company's balance sheet, looking at its working capital, uh, looking at its price to book ratio, and essentially saying, uh, what is the liquidation value of this company? I'm only going to buy, buy this stock when it's trading at a significant discount to its liquidation value. That strategy worked great for about 20 years uh, following uh, the Great Depression. Warren Buffett came along, he took that idea and he expanded on it to say, um, actually, if you buy great businesses that have high returns on capital, strong business models, dominant market share positions, and can grow those earnings for long periods of time, um, if you buy those companies at modest or below market uh, multiples and hold for years, that is how you create wealth and, and build a margin of safety. If you look more recently at some of the best performing stocks over the last last uh, 10 or 20 years, many of them have been tech-enabled companies, Google, Amazon, Netflix, um, um, etc. Et and many of those companies have looked expensive on a price-to-earnings ratio basis for decades, literally for, for, for decades. Amazon didn't have a P.E. ratio, or when it did have a P.E. ratio, it was in the hundreds. So if you were optically looking at the company, you would say, way too expensive, pass. And then the stock went on to double, triple, quadruple, and everything from there. That is more of a limitation of the way that accounting is set up and the limitation of gap accounting more than it's a reflection of the actual earnings power of the businesses that exist today. You pointed out that I have a thread on, on Twitter uh, pointing out nine ways that the P.E. ratio can deceive uh, in, in investors. Uh, if people are interested, um, they can go go check that out. But there are several ways that, the P, that investors can look at the P.E. ratio and come to the wrong conclusion about the value of a, of a, of a company. Uh, to give you a quick one, um, companies now, when they make an investment in another business, if that's if their investment goes up in value or down in value, they are now required by gap accounting to mark up or down their net income according to what happened to that stock price. For example, Amazon bought a sizable equity position in Rivian, the electric car maker, a few years ago. So now, as Rivian's stock goes up and down, Amazon has to report, record its net income up or down based on the recent performance of Rivian's stock. So when Rivian came public, Amazon reported a huge jump in net income because Rivian's stock went up. And as their stock has gone down, they've had to report huge declines in net income. Well, does that does the performance of Rivian stock really impact Amazon the business? I would submit the answer is absolutely not. Yet, if you're looking at the P.E. ratio of Amazon, it is now heavily influenced by what just happened to Rivian stock. In the last 90 days, what happened to Rivian stock? That has a direct impact on the P.E. ratio of Amazon. So I submit, is the P.E. ratio the right metric to use to value Amazon? Because of that one thing, I say no. I say the P.E. ratio for Amazon is essentially a useless figure. And if you're an investor, you have to go to other metrics to look at instead. Yeah, and I agree there. And that was a great breakdown on like kind of how, how you're looking at other things and, and a great example, right, of Amazon or some other great companies, uh, you know, that, that you could see almost a negative PE ratio or something along those lines where a company isn't really earning money. Uh, but, you know, the long term vision of the company uh, makes make sure that it's as it succeeds. But Amazon is an interesting one, right? Because it, it seems like uh, it was tough to predict something like, you know, AWS, for example, right? Because it started off as just a digital you know, marketplace for books. Um, and then now its main revenue driver is AWS. And they simply created AWS because it was a problem that they needed to solve for their own personal business. Um, but it seems like everybody's always kind of chasing that Amazon, where it's like a model of a company that isn't really earning any money uh, currently. And then they're going to kind of delay, 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 keep reinvesting into the business. Maybe they're, uh, you know, earning money, but, you know, their their CapEx expenditures are way higher than their, their overall revenue. So, you know, how do you view kind of, I guess, this trend when it comes to a lot of these growth companies like an Amazon or, you know, like, uh, you know, some of these other ones that we've seen that maybe have been struggling as of late and, uh, you know, might kind of continue to struggle if we have like some difficult economic times. 
Well, uh, it, it always depends on the nature of the company it, itself and always the specifics before you can make any uh, total uh, decisions about that kind of thing. But I'm looking at Amazon's chart right now. The stock is up 102,000% since it came public in 1997. So I would say the strategy that they're pursuing uh, seems to be working. Yes, the stock is down since uh, over the last year, uh, but the stock has still been a tremendous long-term, oh, tremendous wealth creation machine over any uh, stretched period of, of time. Now, if uh, if the market no longer rewards Amazon's strategy of investing its, if reinvesting its profits uh, so so uh, aggressively, it's possible that the management team could switch tactics tactics and choose to um, to focus on maximizing net income instead. There's a number of levers that they could pull today if they wanted to say, let's focus on actually producing a uh, net income. Management hasn't done that for years. And Bezos even made that very clear in his first letter to shareholders in 1997. They're, they're, they're focused on maximizing um, uh, operating cash flow and, fr and free, free cash flow. That is the thing that they care about. They don't care about reported uh, net income. And occasionally, the market has a fit with that where they say, no, we think that that's a terrible strategy. Yes, we think that's a great strategy. And the pendulum of is this in fashion or out of fashion uh, continues to swing back and, and, and forth. Uh, but if you're going to be an investor in Amazon, you have to be comfortable with, with that strategy, uh, period. If you're not, you don't have to own Amazon. Yeah, that's a fair point. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's just interesting, though, because I feel like a lot of companies after seeing Amazon's success are trying to, I guess, almost emulate that or kind of follow the same path. But, um, you know, as somebody who, you know, uh, yeah, so I mean, I, it's just an interesting time with growth companies and other things like that. But um, before I let you go, I, I always ask this, this one last question, uh, especially in volatile times like now where, you know, you, you know, you, you said, keep your head down and get, stay out of the news, but maybe somebody's hearing some things or maybe somebody's parents are kind of saying like, Hey, you know, don't, maybe now it's not a great time to invest. It, we still haven't hit a bottom, et cetera, et cetera. What would be your kind of push to get somebody to get started in investing, or maybe even make the step of just, you know, starting to educate, what would you kind of advise them to, you know, get, get started in the process? Step one to me is always the same. Educate, yourself. Educating yourself is free or just to the left of uh, free. There are wonderful books out there. There are wonderful YouTube channels out there. There are wonderful podcasts uh, out there. S step one is always understand what you're doing and, and, and why you're doing it. That is something that will pay dividends uh, for the rest of, of, of your life. So many people skip over the education part and they go just to buying and selling stocks because they heard about it on on Twitter, or they heard about it on CNBC, or they saw it on, on Reddit, and they, in truth, have no idea uh, what they're they're doing. That is exact same way that I started uh, out, um, and I lost money doing so. And it's from there I decided to to educate my, myself. So if you if you are going to listen to me, step one: uh, educate yourself, educate yourself, educate yourself. If you're not going to do uh, that, go out, make mistakes, lose money, and 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 learn the hard way. That's how I decided to learn. But there is an easier path if you choose to do it. Yeah, for sure. And you, you put out great content and everything like that. So why don't you tell people where they can find that and uh, what else you got going on? Sure. The best place to connect with me is on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Brian Feraldi. I also have a free uh, newsletter uh, once a week where we, uh, me and my two business partners who've been also investing uh, for decades, share one investing lesson as well as links to some timeless content that we think is worth um, uh, highlighting. So if you want to sign up for that, you can do so at brianferaldi.com. Yeah, for sure. And I'll link all that in the show notes. So be sure to check it out and give Brian a follow on Twitter and check out his free newsletter as it's uh, great, great, great content. So Brian, thanks so much for Kevin coming on and uh, we'll have to have you on uh, again in the near future. Sounds good, Brandon. Thanks for having me.